You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. chance to see the cross back here. You know, only God could take something, a cross that was really intended by man to be a form of punishment, of cruelty, of torture. And only God could take something that was intended for that and bring new life. And so every year, almost every year, we try to do this with the living cross. So if you've got flowers here this morning, I know some of you came in with those. We'll bring that back down and you can Set this outside, so if you are looking for something to do later on today, uh, drive by and you'll just see this thing will just be full of uh, flowers. So again, it's just a great reminder of the new life that God has given to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen? We've been in a series of these last few weeks. We've been talking uh, on the big church, not because we're a big church, but because the church is a big deal uh, to Jesus. We've been looking at the very first church in the very first century. hierarchy, not as a denomination, but as a movement. Because as we have said throughout the series, movements move. And so the first church was launched, it was founded, it was galvanized around a singular event in the history of mankind. We call that event Easter. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it is what we are celebrating here today. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, his victory over the grave that galvanized and unified those very first century believers around this very simple idea that Jesus Christ came, he made a lot of bold statements, and it was his resurrection from the dead that confirmed and validated everything he said about himself, about God the Father, was indeed true. Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. God manifested in human flesh. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it is our guarantee, it is our validation and proof that everything hundred percent true. A couple of weeks ago in one of our staff meetings, someone made the statement that they had heard somebody say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the resurrection. Now my immediate response to that was, what good is believing in Jesus if you don't believe in the resurrection? Because without the resurrection, all you've got is another dead guy. And that's true. As a matter of fact, when somebody asked me, how do you know I mean, how can, how can you say that Christianity is the one true religion? Other religion known to mankind. And my response is this, very simple. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You had this man, one man, Jesus Christ, who... He would prove it. He would demonstrate it. 
by going into the grave and coming out of that grave with an existence in which death was no longer a possibility. No other religion can or ever will be able to make that claim. It was this very simple, yet very powerful, very profound message. The testimony by eyewitnesses who were there. They had seen Jesus die on that cross. They laid him in the tomb. And then they saw him resurrected from the dead. And that basically launched, it propelled, and it gave birth. That message, that proclamation is what gave birth to that movement we call the church. These last few weeks, we've been looking at some of the issues, the conflicts, the controversies the first church and the first Christians faced there in that very first century. And last week, we kind of touched on the issue of grace versus law. And we looked at that complexing question facing the church there in the first century. We looked at this last week. Who should be a part of the church? Who gets in and who doesn't? How many and exactly what rules do we need to obey? How holy is holy enough? I mean, we don't want to be too holy, so tell us what is enough. Integrated into this movement called the church. What does it actually mean to be a follower of Jesus in terms of how I live my life. So this morning I want to look at the big question that swirled around the early church and it, it's a question that swirls around the church in every generation from that very beginning. And it can be best summarized by the young wealthy man in Matthew 19, 16 and he pops the big question, Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question of all questions. In other words, what do I got to do to get right with God? What good things do I need to do to accomplish with my life to get in to heaven? Stories told of a Sunday school teacher whose assignment was to explain To kind of discover what did the kids already know or understand about that subject he asked a few questions he said kids if I sold my house my car if I had a big garage sale and gave all of my possessions and all my money to the church would that get me into heaven and the kids shouted no if I cleaned the church every day mowed the yard kept everything neat and tidy would that get me into kind to animals, if I gave candy to all the children and loved my wife, would that get me into heaven? And again they shouted, no. The teacher said, well then, how can I get into heaven? A kid in the back row stood up and he shouted, you got to be dead. <laughs> and therein lies one of the dilemmas. You got to be dead to go to heaven. And most agree that death is a and speculation begins. This morning, I want to look at held belief. Even in today's culture, 
regarding who gets into heaven. I say ancient because, again, the idea's been around since the beginning of civilization. Even after Adam and Eve had sinned. And it surfaces in every generation, yet in spite of its immense popularity and long-standing, it doesn't make a lick of sense. Smart, educated, accomplished men and women from just about every nation on earth are banking their eternal security on a theory that doesn't hold up even under the slightest amount of scrutiny. So what is this internationally held assumption? Good people go to heaven. In a good place reserved for good people. That makes sense to a lot of people. This God, he goes by many different names. He is really kind of behind all major, possibly minor, world religions. Therefore, all major, minor religions. Period for making it to this good place where this good God lives is to be good people. Well, it makes sense. Every religion really has its own definition for good. But what they all have in common is that men and women must do certain things and should not do certain things in order to assure themselves a spot in this good place with a good God. Are you with me? If you're like most people, you believe that everybody lives forever somewhere. That once you die, your soul, your spirit goes somewhere. Most Americans believe in heaven, while a smaller percentage believe that the soul kind of just comes back for another lap, another life, in a different body. We just kind of start over as something or someone else. So in spite of all of their difference, all their peculiarities, the religions of this world share one common denominator. They all agree that how you spend your life in this world determines what comes next. Now see, Western thought, American thought is all good people go to heaven. In other parts of the world, again, the prevailing thought is that, you know, good people that they're not good enough, but they're good. They just kind of come back. They're reincarnated. They're given the opportunity to become better people. And this reincarnation cycle just continues until eventually the person reaches a state of perfection or godlike stature. So here's the deal. If God appeared to you and asked you this question, why should I let you into heaven? Let's be honest. Most of our responses to that question would run something along the line of these statements. I've always tried to, dot, 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 dot. I never, dot, 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 dot. I do my best to, dot, 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 dot. Whether you're Muslim, Hindu, Christian, the majority of responses to that question 
go back to an individual's that good people go to heaven. The problem is, as good as you are, and you are good, right? Let's face it. Honestly, most of us question and wonder, am I good enough? You hope so. You try to be. I mean, I'm certainly better than you know. But how good is good enough? Where's the line? Where's the standard? Where do you currently stand? Do you have enough time left to complete enough good deeds to counterbalance, counteractive the bad ones? This is really at the heart of the question the young rich ruler posed to Jesus. Now again, the logic behind good people go to heaven is completely impenetrable on two accounts. First, it's fair, right? This is fair. By fair, I mean people who do good things deserve good things, right? People who do good deserve good things. And we all agree with that. If you do well in school, you move on to the next grade. If you do well in tryouts, you make the team. If you do well on the job, you receive promotions and a pay raise. Being rewarded for your effort, it is part of the human experience and expectation. So it makes the sense that this dynamic originated with God and it would be a standard that God would adhere to. I get that. I understand that. I like that to a degree. The Bible, the Quran, the Book of Mormon all recount God's eagerness to reward good behavior in this life. So it only makes sense and it only seems fair that if you do well in this life, if you're a good person, you should go to heaven. You deserve it. Second, it coincides with the notion that there is a good God, right? If there's a good God and he dwells in a good place, then it would make sense that God... If heaven were full of bad people, I mean, it wouldn't be heavenly. A good God in a good place sounds like the ideal destination for good people. Besides the fact this view appeals really to our common sense. It's good for society. It's good for our culture. It keeps everybody striving to be on their best behavior. and the balance hinging on whether or not you do good, chances are you're going to do more good than bad things. But you know what? Once you kind of get beyond the emotional appeal, you have to kind of admit the good people go to heaven view kind of has some major problems. First of all, if good people go to heaven, then don't we need kind of a clear, consistent definition for what is good we need a list I mean we're like that young rich ruler just tell me show me the list tell me what I gotta do to get into heaven because that's where I want to go 
if God allows good people into heaven, but again, he doesn't bother to specify what he means by good, it leaves me to kind of wonder just how good God is. Let me just illustrate that. Pretend for a moment you've signed up for a race. You're standing at the starting line with all of the other runners. Up ahead, you notice that the, fork, the road kind of forks off into three different directions. You also notice there's no flags, there's no markers, there's no signs. You ask the race official for, you know, some kind of a map, and he tells you there is no map. And your eyes haven't deceived you. There are no markers of any kind giving you any sense of direction or the boundaries of the course. So how long is this race? I mean, what's the destination? The race official just kind of shrugs his shoulder and replies, you just run. And don't stop until we tell you that you cross the finish line, assuming you find it. With no warning, the starting gun is fired. The runners take off in a half different directions. Honestly, would you call that a good race? Would you want to run in a race like that? Would you recommend that kind of a race to a friend? Unrealistic? Sure. But let's be honest. If there is life beyond this one and where you end up, is determined by your crossing the finish line here on earth with nothing really specific to go on. Be good is really about as... How long? If there's a level of performance that will get us... in good conscience call God good. It seems to be kind of shrouded in mystery. There seems to be kind of a, an aloofness. I mean, if that's our thought, then good kind of takes on a completely different meaning. Good no longer means fair and just. It means, well, we really don't know. But it gets worse. If there's a level of performance of doing good that gets us into heaven and God neglects to tell us exactly what it is, then how committed is God really to getting us into heaven? I mean, you would never hold people you care about to a standard you refused to reveal or share with them. As an employer, you wouldn't withhold a job description from your employees and then evaluate them by a standard they never had an opportunity to see. I mean, as a teacher, it would be unfair to give your students a test on material you've never covered. See, when mere mortals act in this manner, we, the people, we complain loud and long. We, we would yank our kids out of those kinds of schools. We wouldn't want to work for those kind of companies. We expect more from our fellow man. And yet when it comes to God, we seem like we've just kind of settled for a far different standard. Now just assume for a moment that you do know what constitutes good enough. Maybe there's some of you sitting out there thinking, I've got this all figured out. 
let's assume you somehow divinely know in certain terms what constitutes good by God's standard. Even if that was the case, you are still left with the quandary of how you are to be graded and where you kind of stand at any given moment. So let me ask you, when you die, do you go to heaven if your deeds constitute 70% of your overall deeds? Does 51% earn you a passing grade? And I'm not trying to be silly here. If you believe good people go to heaven, then this is a relevant question. What percentage of your good deeds do you need to do to pass over to the positive side of the balance sheet in order to secure a slot in heaven? Come on. Play along with me. Make, make a guess. Never thought about it, have no idea, neither have I, because God has not revealed it to you or to me. What if God, get this, what if God graves on a curve and Mother Teresa and Billy Graham skewed the cosmic curve? How would you like to compete with those people on a scale of goodness? of doing. While we're at it in this what-if mode, consider this. Under the good people scenario, some of you could just simply run out of time. Think about it. Right now, it could be that some of you here this morning don't have enough time left in your life to do the good deeds necessary to make up for your bad ones. You could be sitting there right now argue you hope not but you don't know I don't know you have left and he's holding the cards pretty close to his chest if God is good and good people go to heaven shouldn't God just kind of show up every generation and just kind of give us the standard of what he expects. Call it goodness 10.0. Do you know why various religions, most religions kind of cling to this view in one form or another? Because there aren't any other good options available. This is the best option they've been able to come up with. If good people don't go, who does? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, everybody goes to heaven. That would be great. I would love it if that were true. But that would mean then the majority of religious leaders have lied and misled us for generations. If everybody's going to make it, why doesn't God just show up and tell us, solve the mystery, end the confusion, shut down the controversies? Perhaps the most perplexing problem with the good people go to heaven view is it really kind of contradicts and goes against the teachings of Jesus Christ. In fact, if good people go to heaven, get this, Jesus 
completely intentionally lied and misled his audience. And at least on one occasion, he wrongly comforted a dying man. The truth is, Jesus taught the very opposite of what most people in the world believe. Jesus taught that good people don't go to heaven. Furthermore, he taught that God was intent on not giving people what they deserved. Jesus claimed that God's desire to... things that really infuriated even the religious leaders of that time in that very first century. For starters, he declared that even the best among them were not good enough. Matthew 5.20, Jesus said this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness or your goodness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he's speaking to men here that when it came to the laws, to the rules, regulations of the Old Testament, the, the Pharisees, I mean, they were the best of the best. Remember, we talked about the law of Moses last week, the hundreds and hundreds of rules and regulations and policies. I, I mean, the Pharisees, they strive to do and to keep all 613 points of the law. It was their job. They were professional do gooders they were paid to be good you're good for nothing their job was to stay so pure before God that they would be able to hear from him and thus direct the people accordingly they took their job seriously not only did they keep the law that was given by Moses but they invented new laws we called them fence laws to keep them from ever even getting close to breaking the top ten I'm not exaggerating when I say that these men spent their entire lives, their focus, making sure they were the best of the best, that they were the closest to perfection that mankind could ever come. So imagine how irritated you would be and frustrated when Jesus would point to several of them in public and have the audacity to say that unless a person's righteousness, goodness, surpass that of the finest, the best of men in goodness, that person would not make it into God's kingdom. Basically, Jesus pointed to those professional do-gooders and he said, as good as you are, you're not good enough. While the Pharisees walked away mad and annoyed and plotting his death, everybody else walked away depressed. After all, if their religious leaders, the professional do-gooders, weren't enough, then who could be the average man, woman? They didn't have that kind of time. There were jobs to do, kids to raise, sheep to shear. If the Pharisees weren't good enough to earn their way into God's kingdom, then nobody was. So if, according to Jesus, the guys who made a living out of being good weren't good enough for heaven, what about me? What about you? One last thing about the good people go to heaven view and what Jesus believed and taught occurred as Jesus was being crucified on the cross. 
The gospel tells us there was a conversation, an exchange that took place between Jesus and the two men that were being crucified on either side of him. Luke 23, verse 39 says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you were under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now notice... ...particularly relevant to our discussion. As horrible as a death by crucifixion was, the second criminal readily acknowledged he admitted that his life was so horrible... In other words, he said, stack up our deeds and you won't find a good one anywhere in there. And the convicted criminal did the unthinkable. He asked Jesus for a favor. He said, Jesus, would you have mercy on me in spite of my worthless life, in spite of all of my bad choices, in spite of all of the things that I have done wrong? Have mercy on me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now keep in mind, the opportunity for doing good had come and gone. This was a dead man talking. He had come to the end of his miserable life. There was no... He had lived his life exactly the way he wanted with no concern for doing the right thing. And now hours from the end, he suddenly gets religion and asks for mercy. Now, if Jesus, like most people, believed that good people go to heaven and bad people don't, what would you expect him to say to a guy in a predicament, in a situation like this, who by his own admission says, I I've, I've lived a miserable life horrible, wretched life, worthy of death. What would you have told him? What if he had raped your sister or your wife? What if this was the man who had murdered your parents? What if you had been maimed because of this man's reckless behavior? I want you to notice none of that mattered. To Jesus, because in Luke 23, 43, he tells the criminal, I tell you the truth, because he is the way, the life, and the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Do you realize what, has that hit you the way it hits me? It means that Jesus not only did not believe good people go to heaven, but he actually believed bad ones do. One of his last acts before dying is he made a promise to a criminal. And he promised him a spot in paradise. Clearly, Jesus did not believe good people go to heaven. Confused? Troubled? Perplexed? 
See, if you embrace the notion that good people go to heaven, you cannot embrace the teachings or the person of Jesus Christ, no matter how hard you try. So if the way to God and the way to heaven isn't by being good, what is it? If good people don't go to heaven and bad ones do, what's the criterion? How do we do it? Who does? Very simple. Forgiven people go to heaven. And forgiveness, folks, was only made possible through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood his death upon that cross. Colossians 2.14 proclaims he has forgiven all of our sins. Canceled every wrong, every debt, every evil, wicked thing you have done. It was done away with Christ by nailing it to the cross. If you were here on Good Friday, you've got a very powerful visual reminder of that. See, God looks at your sin, my sin, your evil, my evil, your wickedness, my wickedness, and he sees it as a debt we'll never ever be able to repay, no matter how many lives we've got to pay it. It is an unpayable debt. Christianity teaches that when mankind sinned, God opted, he chose That's what Christianity teaches. That's what the resurrection was all about. When Jesus went to the cross, it was God opting for forgiveness through the blood of Christ rather than demanding more goodness, perfection from us. Romans 5, 6 says, you see, at just the right time while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, powerless means we could not do anything about our condition no matter how hard we tried. We were without hope unless somebody somehow intervened on our behalf. The reason good people don't go to heaven is because there aren't any good people. As good as you are, it'll never be good enough. Romans 5, 3.23 says, For all have sinned, every one of us in this room have sinned, me chiefest of them. All of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard. And no amount of goodness, perfection on our part is going to make up for that. Hebrews 7, 18 through 19 says the old system, that was the Mosaic laws, the rules, the regulations, the policies of the Old Testament, trying to earn our way to heaven by being good, he said was canceled because it didn't work. It wasn't effective. It was weak and useless for saving people. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to save. Now, as a result of his death, as a result of his resurrection, we have a far better life, a far better hope, for Christ now makes us acceptable to God. Striving to be good people, earning their way to heaven was the old system. It was done away with. It It didn't work. Here's the icing on the cake and where I'm going to end it. This is what this morning is all about. 
Because Jesus was raised from the dead. That's what we're celebrating here. That's our focus this morning. Because of his resurrection from the grave, we've been given a brand new life. You've been given an opportunity, an offer, an invitation this morning for a brand new life. Some of you are just living for the wrong stuff, for the wrong things, the wrong people. Jesus was raised from the dead to give you a brand new life and everything to live for. Regardless of who you're living with. Gives you a purpose for your life. He says, including a future in heaven. If if that's not enough, he just gives you a brand new life. He just gives you everything, every reason to live for. I'll just kind of throw in a future in heaven because I'm just a good God. And that future, that beginning, that newness, that offer, that invitation, it's open now. It begins Now, all you've got to do is just say no to the old system, yes to Jesus. Scriptures cannot be any clearer. He who has the Son has life, eternal life, the life that God came to give. He who does not have the Son does not have life. It doesn't get any simpler than that, folks. I love the conversation between Jesus and and that young rich ruler. I want you to notice how Jesus ended that conversation. And there he simply said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen? This morning we're gonna just give you an opportunity again to really celebrate that every time you do it, do it in remembrance of me. See, some of you here this morning, you're just leaning on the arm of flesh. You're leaning on your own power, your own abilities to try to please God, to try to do all of the right things and to get into heaven. And you're just leaning, leaning, leaning on the arm of flesh. Jesus said, don't, don't do that. My body is broken for you. Lean on me. Put your hope not in your flesh, your ability, your desires, your power. Put your confidence in my body, my power, my ability, my desires. So every time you do it, do it in remembrance of me. It's a choice. No to self, yes to Jesus. That's what the bread is. No to self, yes to Jesus. No to self, yes to Jesus. No to me, yes to him. That's what it's about. When he was finished, he took that cup, he lifted it up, gave thanks to God and said, drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So if you're here this morning and you are carrying a load of guilt, of shame, of con. Own blood. It'll never be enough. 
because the blood that needed to be shed to make you right with God has been shed when Jesus went to the cross. His blood was shed, and his blood was shed so you and I could have forgiveness. And then he was resurrected from the dead to show, to demonstrate, to prove to you that everything that God required of mankind to be right with him was satisfied and fulfilled in the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood for you and for me. That's why this morning is a celebration. Because every one of us in this room this morning have that opportunity to say yes. God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. (laughs) That's it. Jesus, you're Lord, not me. Jesus, you're in control, not me. Jesus, you're calling the shots now, not me. Jesus, it's all about you and not about me. I die to self and I live for you. That is, that's Lord. And then we just simply believe what we're here for this morning. We just believe in our heart of hearts that I know, that I know, that I know that God raised him from the dead. And in that belief, I have salvation. That's it. It's that simple. It's that beautiful. It's that awesome. And that is the message that unified, that galvanized that church there in the first century and in every century since then. Amen going to invite you to stand this morning and if you have never ever said yes to Jesus it really is that simple this morning it can just simply be again that confession of your mouth Jesus is Lord when you're saying Jesus is Lord you're saying yes to him and you're saying yes to all that he is even though you may not fully understand that but as you say yes to him God will begin to reveal and he will begin to show you and he'll begin to give revelation and understanding to your heart as to who he is so that you can just say yes over and over and over at deeper and deeper and deeper levels. So for some of you that have never said that yes this morning, this morning may be the first time you just say, you know what, I want to give this a try. I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to give him an opportunity to do what he wants to do in my life. If that's you this morning, we'll have a Jim, Pastor Mark Cassie, people up here that would love to pray with you this morning and just seal the deal. You can come and just again celebrate that in communion. Just take a moment again just to worship our great God who has done great things, namely raising his son from the dead on our behalf. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.